This episode of Storylines is brought to you by Red Frame Law. Let's face it, dealing with legal issues like the nitty-gritty of contracts and the legalese in broadcaster licenses is not fun to tackle alone unless you're a masochist. Red Frame Law helps film producers protect their productions and intellectual property and thus can be your production counsel so you can concentrate on what you do best, being a film producer. So quit torturing yourself. Visit redframelaw.com today to book a free 15-minute consultation because at Red Frame Law, you create, they protect. That's redframelaw.com. Welcome to Storylines, a podcast brought to you by WIFTA, Women in Film and Television, Alberta. I'm your host, Sheena Rossiter. On this week's episode, producers were coming to us to uh, produce their projects. We're in conversation with director of photography, Lisa Frickland. If you uh, go in with, with your own preconceived notions, the director, producer, or the story, the story or the people in the story will, will, make, will change that right away for you. Lisa has seen the world through the lens of a camera. Lisa cut her teeth as a camera operator working in news at a small-town TV station in Saskatchewan in the 1980s. After years of working in news and sports, she made a switch to documentary and lifestyle projects. You have to recognize what, where you're working and what you're working, who you're working with. I think that's with all jobs. She shot projects like the National Geographic program $100 Taxi Ride, <laughs> the travel game show The Amazing Race, Intervention, and Adoption Stories. For a family who is willing to adopt a newborn baby with special needs. Whether or not he succeeds or not succeeds, whether or not he lives or dies. Lisa now calls San Francisco home, where she works as a freelance director of photography. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lisa. Thank you. As we mentioned, you have very humble beginnings. You started out as a camera operator in a small town in Saskatchewan shooting news. How did that get started? Take me back to that story. When I graduated college, I came up with a lot of hope and eagerness to work in a TV station because that's where everybody started back in the 80s. And that was going to be our hope to take us all the way through to retirement. In 1984, when I graduated, there was kind of a at the edge of a recession and there wasn't a lot of jobs within the Calgary market, much less a Red Deer market or Lethbridge market. So there, the first job I sort of saw come up was one in Swift Current in Saskatchewan. I immediately just wanted to take that job just so I could start working. And I ended up there for a whole year. I moved on to Swift Current and then I went to Winnipeg and then Regina and ended up eventually in Calgary at CFCN. Okay, so you have made your way across the Canadian prairies at this point, shooting news and shooting sports. But then you made the jump from news and sports to lifestyle and documentary. How did that come about? How did you manage to make that switch? When I left news, I went into a company called Vicom, which was a production company for in both Calgary and Edmonton. And they specialized in doing corporate videos, but we started to branch out more into doing some broadcast productions, uh, commercials, long-form documentaries for the corporate world, but also some that made it you know, to television. And producers were coming to us to uh, produce their projects. And one in particular was, uh, was called, a show called Rebels, which was a, a six-part series about counterculture. 
And in 1998, we spent most of the year going around North America and Europe interviewing counterculture rebels, which was uh, mind-blowing in its own sense. But that was a show for uh, history television, and it also ran on CTV, and it had some windows in the United States. Shows like that started coming in and making them go, yeah, you know, I prefer doing it this way. It reminded me of the, what it's like working for broadcast, even though our you know, corporate productions are great, and you got to you put the same amount of energy into them. But it was like, well, these are quite fun. And by that point, too, in 1998, the uh, Vicom was changing where it was going because they were involved in the tech boom bust, the first one. And I offered them to buy their equipment and do a little uh, a rate that would help them for some production. So I was working for them. Plus, I owned the equipment then. And then uh, I was just fortunate of having worked in that company for over uh, almost five years. And I met a lot of great producers who were freelancers in the province who were working on corporate productions and some broadcast ones. And they sort of led me into all their productions they were doing. And so it's like this whole friendship network expanded. It is a little complicated being a freelancer in any profession. We are a gig economy here in television production. How challenging is it to be a freelancer in general? When I first started, I had to buy the equipment and I also updated the equipment. So I was immediately had a, a, a debt of $110,000 that I had to deal with. That would keep me up at night knowing that I would want to pay that debt back within a five-year window that that I was given from the bank. You know, it's a good reason to get up in the morning to, go, to try and find work because you got to pay that debt off, plus make money. But that was like the, one of the earliest challenges. And then it was just, yeah, making new friends and new people to play with. That's sort of the who are the new kids to play in the sandbox with. Freelancing now in the industry has taken on a bit of a different perspective than it did maybe 20 years ago because now technology is more democratic and more accessible. But when you first started out, what were some mistakes that you made upon reflection that you would tell people who are wanting to be freelancers to maybe avoid? You're, you're always told to upgrade, uh, generally by market forces uh, and also just by advertising and what others are telling you. So it becomes a bit of a it can become a fool's game after a while if you're starting to listen to other DPs or, um, you know, go to getting on websites. The mistakes are, I mean, this is later in my career as being a sucker to buying a lot of stuff. How difficult is it to be a female DP? What are the challenges that you face? It is a boy's game. It's, it's set up to be that way because historically guys were doing it. I don't think it was just necessarily because it's a, a physical thing. It just was a, I don't know how the roles played out that way. But you see more and more women shooting now, news and in cinema, and cinematographers for even you know feature films. I've noticed some male DPs can be a little bit territorial. There's a bit of an intimidation about pretending to know more and have experienced more than the other person. I think that's just sort of based on industry insecurities. I think that can maybe that could happen in a lot of departments. There's a certain character amongst DPs. I mean, a lot of. DPs are my friends, don't get me wrong, but they, they can push you out of the way. You can feel you're being pushed out of the way. And again, the other thing some guys will do, and DPs, camera assistants, they'll, they'll start doing tech talk too much. Not that women are incapable of having, you know, doing tech talk for ages, but it's it's almost like comparing baseball scores about what you know, about uh, what's, what, what that camera can do and what the, you know, what it can talk 
somewhat how well the camera can see or how well it can record. Don't, I, I'd say that's one thing that can happen is just that intimidation in there. And I don't even think it's not even intentional. It just sort of happens. In the early 2000s, you transitioned from male to female on both sides of the coin. So pre-transition and post-transition and during transition, were you perceived in different ways? I suppose so. I mean, yeah, well, the, the hardest point during that that period was, uh, you know, telling everybody what was going to happen. And I was in the middle of some really good shoots going on. So I sat down, producers I was working with, and said, well, here's a heads up. In a year, things are going to change. I mean, I gave everybody time. I educated friends and uh, you know, co-workers, family, about what was going to happen. So I did, I really did try to cover my bases to make people feel secure about what was going to happen. I, I, I'm... I guess it's when I when I think about this, I always I get, I get a bit stumbly because I it, it's a it's a funny moment funny moment in life, and I was worried that no, no one would ever hire me again because it, it it is a, an odd subject. But you know the funny thing about it was I I think I I just kept my honesty as as who I am, and I I did I, I think I transitioned really well and not made people feel uncomfortable. And I don't use it as my calling card, like oh hire me because of this, and if you if you don't, I'm going to say you've discriminated, you know, anything like that. It's just, it's still me. Everyone knows it's me. But so how do they, I think they still, all, the, all my coworkers still relate to me as me, uh, you know, in, in a deep down sense. There is a her, her and him stuff that kind of got mixed up at the beginning <laughs> every now and again, but not too often. I didn't really find too much of a problem. I mean, I think a few people might have turned me down on some projects. But, you know, that, that's bound to happen, considering I know what the worst scenario was far worse. Were you ever scared? Oh, very much so. What were your biggest fears during that point in your life? How, how scary was that? I think just any, any human basic fear is rejection. Is uh, If the group doesn't want you there, that's it. You're left out in the cold and you're not making money and you can't do what you want to do. And that's what, that's, that's what I feared. But, you know, sometimes you also have to try, try your best, you know, and... Do what you think is I do what I thought was important, and move ahead. And it seemed to seem to be okay. <laughs> Were you pleasantly surprised by how people reacted to your transition? Very much so. I mean, I think part of it was I'm working in an industry where people we're exposed to a lot of different lifestyles and just different parts of the human condition. So it's not like industry people are, you know, they only meet one, the same type of person all day long. I had a lot of, you know, great encouragement from people in the industry. And I, 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 I have a long list of people who I, I just go through, I think are just tremendous, you know, who just wrapped their arms around me and said, no, we're, we're here with you. Would you give any advice to people who are transitioning either from male to female or female to male and who want to work in the film industry any advice to them of how they can positively deal with a transition? Don't let it be your calling card, but also just be, do your best to make inform people what's going on. Make them feel comfortable. It's not it's not up to them to make you feel comfortable. You they they're trying to deal. You've been dealing with your situation all your life, but they haven't yet. So it's not fair to to expect for, for them to go from zero to a hundred in like one or two days. They're 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 going to have to they have to process. You have, you have to be fair about that. So I want to talk about some of your projects. You've worked on some fantastic projects over the years, mostly true stories. So 
let's talk a little bit about some of the best projects you worked on. One project that you particularly enjoyed was a hundred dollar taxi. For our listeners who don't know what that project's about, can you tell us? This show was done, you know, for National Geographic, and we we shot two years of it. Uh, so we got around the world several times because we what it was is a, a director and I, mostly a guy named Joel Stewart, who uh, also became the voice of the series. The two of us would just go to a given city somewhere in the world. We'd have a fixer in that town who would find us maybe 10 taxi drivers who could speak English. And uh, we'd just see who's the most dynamic. We'd pick a driver. And then that afternoon, we'd pick up a story. We'd, we'd create a storyline. Next day, the driver would show up, and then we'd start shooting. And then we'd have the next three to four days to create a TV show. That's so cool because through my travels in my life, taking a lot of taxis, and taxi drivers always tend to be the most fascinating characters. Is that right? They can be in some places. And other times they can be very dull, too. You just you have to weed, weed through them. Yeah, but that's that was, the, that was the premise. Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And yes, I'm a little afraid. I've read all the books about how Rio is dangerous, but the books also say that Rio de Janeiro is a place where the people are proud. Proud of their beaches, proud of their appearance, Proud of having, despite the crime problem, one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. When you were working on that show, what was one cab driver in particular that really stands out in your mind? I think there was one we had in Auckland, New Zealand. My director, Joel, he's a sports fan, and we're sitting down interviewing these guys in Auckland. We had some really good people come in the door. One guy was like a Maori, and we almost thought, that's going to be our guy. You know, he's got he's going to take us to his village, and we're going to do some stuff. And then our final interview came in, it's just... An older man is, uh, you know, his uh, late sixties, and he's a wiry little guy. And, and he says, "Oh yes, Canada." You said, "I've been to Canada. I I was there in 1957 for the Empire Games in in Victoria." And my and Joel, he's like I said, a sports fan. He goes, well, "Wasn't that the same year that Roger Bannister, you know, won the Miracle Mile, the three minute mile?" And he goes, "Oh yes, yes, uh, I I was there too. I I was in that race, and I came in sixth. And we went. I think we have a storyline here. So we did, and the guy had the guy had a running track at running track named after him in New Zealand, in Auckland, and he drives taxi with his wife so they can raise money, so they make extra money, so they can travel around the world because they're trying to hit a hundred countries before they 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 pack it in. How important is adaptability when you're out in the field shooting as a DP on docks? Oh yeah, it's it's very important. I mean, uh, yeah, if you uh, go in with with your own preconceived notions, the director, producer, or the story, the story or the people in the story will will make will change that right away for you. <laughs> and you have to be malleable, and 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 so yeah, you're thinking, okay, we're going to be shooting this interview now, and it's all going to be fine, and I'm not going to have to move, and it's really then something snaps really fast and has to change. You 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 got to be yeah, be 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 able to to react, and because you're going to get something really cool out of it. When I did this uh, counterculture documentary, we were interviewing the, the writer Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and we're at his farm in Oregon. He, we kept hearing an, an airplane fly over, over, and it was really annoying him after a while. So we had everything set up, nice lighting. He had his, uh, his bu- the bus behind him that all the hippies would travel with back in the 60s. And he goes, dang it, that goddamn plane. So he just gets up and moves away from the whole camera interview, and he's like, well, you better pick up the camera and see what he's doing. We followed him outside, and he points up to that airplane, and you, we, I zoom in on this thing, so be ready to move from indoors to outdoors. And this airplane, he says, there, you see that plane? It's got no markings on it. 
He says, that's a DEA plane. He says, after, he says, after all these years, those guys are still afraid of me. They're still afraid of me. They think I'm growing dope on this farm. He says, they're still afraid. So, but that's how the show ended. And it, it was just kind of a, it was a really neat little moment. If you're stubborn and you don't want to move on to do stuff, you, you, you'll just, you'll squander. There's one show that you worked on. You might not have filmed a lot of episodes, but I'm very curious because I'm a, I wouldn't say necessarily fan of the show, but I've seen the show and it's a very emotional show. Intervention. What was it like filming that show? First of all, it, it is about people who are trying to overcome an addiction to drugs or alcohol. How challenging was it to film that? It's a challenge sort of to watch how it happens. There's two crews that work within Intervention. I wish I actually was part of the crew that actually hung out with the addict because that's almost, it's like a, there was a, a director and they just give him a little handy cam and they hang out with the guy or gal as they drink or they shoot up. Although I did a bunch of pre-intervention stuff with people who were drinking or did narcotics. But um, stuff that I but, that I did a lot of was setting the you know do the pre-interview the interviews with the people the family members and then setting up the room where the person comes in they get tricked into coming into the into the hotel or wherever place you're at where the interventionist is you have to be prepared for that person to walk in and go there's no damn way and they'll just walk out and you have to chase them down the street often happens on that show yeah and they, you have to be ready because and we have to be ready to chase them down the street in case uh, you know something goes bad and i never actually had that chase happen i pretty close but a lot of times they sit down and it gets extremely emotional but even after that's done then you still got to follow them around the hotel and then eventually they, they they take them to uh to the airport they put them on a plane they go directly to the uh to the rehab facility it's an it, it, it's a it's a long day <laughs> on the day of the uh, intervention because you do deal with real people how emotional is it for you to speak with these people and interview them not just on the show intervention but in general how hard is it for you because you're you're dealing with real people in real lives here well you got to put up a bit of a a wall too because you're the, also the documentarian so you shouldn't really try to be part of the show but you can't help but feel it you know like oh geez what are you doing or just just carry on you know i, mean, I think you have to you have to be professional and sometimes there's, there's emotional like you could be outraged. I've been on documentaries where I'm been outraged about a person's behavior, but you can't do much about it. There was one time we did uh, this adoption story project. We followed a couple. They're from Winnipeg, and they tried to have children, and they, the babies died at birth. They're such a sweet couple, a really sweet couple. And we eventually we went over to Ethiopia where they, they adopted a, a baby girl, and it was lovely. We hung out with the mom for a while as she because uh, she got there first, and she was with the baby and it was she's getting used to her and then the dad showed up a few days later and we had, we had done stuff with the dad much beforehand so we got to know him we knew what he was like he was a wonderful man but when he arrived at, arrived at midnight in Addis Ababa we picked him up at the airport and followed him he comes into this con or this uh, hotel where they're staying we follow him into the room and the you know the wife's there of course and she says this is our baby and they sit down in the middle of the room and the two of them in their eyes out over this little baby and it's i thought it was one of the greatest moments i've ever shot in in my career and i like i looked around the whole room the crew the mom and dad of course and you know are all crying we're all <laughs> the only one not crying in the room is a little baby 
it was the sweetest thing. And then, you know, so you get to see some of the, a really lovely thing happen, a very lovely thing happen in this career. But you still got to stand back. You got to keep, just can't put the camera down and go, I'm just going to go outside and cry. No, keep shooting. On that note, because you do deal with real life and you are on the road a lot and you have been on the road a lot, how important is it to have a work-life balance in this area as a freelance DP? You better have some good communication with your partner and hopefully have a partner who understands that you're going to be possibly gone a lot and have unusual hours. And most freelancers, too, when you say, well, you know, we're going off, I'll be on set, you know, from until about six o'clock tonight, and I should be home right after for dinner. You're likely not going to be because there's always something that happens. You know, you have to stay longer. And if your partner doesn't get that, you're going to have troubles because it's going to continue to happen. It's not a nine to five job. It won't be. And if you're successful enough and you're traveling, it's going to, you know, it's going to be worse because you're on the road a lot. In my case, with my first partner, I'd be on the road a lot, come back, and I would just be talking about, uh, you know, all these great things I've seen. Oh, like, you know, like we were in Bali and this is what happened in Bali where these monkeys and then there's this festival. Then we went off to Japan and and, and you're not going to get there like, oh, well, that sounds great. But, you know, what did you do? It's not going to, you can't, it, it, someone could feel this. They could possibly feel jealous or hurt and it can't catch up. I mean, but it takes a, a, you know, a really good partner to keep up. But that wasn't the destruction of my first relationship by any means, but I've seen other DPs and people in the industry who've had their relationships ruined by just because of the hours. It's not uncommon to see divorce and breakups in this industry. You have worked a little bit in scripted, but you've worked mostly in lifestyle documentary. For people who kind of straddle the world between both, what's the difference that you have to know when you're a DP in scripted for blocking shots and stuff like that versus documentary? Just just different conventions within either there's an artistic freedom within both. You have to recognize what, what you're working within. When you're scripted, you can still offer changes, but someone's done a storyboard and they've done a script. You just can't go, hey, let's try this shot now. Let's try. If you get, if you start to take over someone's shoot, they might be upset with you. Because, <laughs> but in documentaries and reality stuff, it things happen on the fly. So you're, it could be more collaborative. You could run off and they, you know, run off and get something, a shot that is going to save the day. Yeah, you have to recognize where, where you're working and what you're working, who you're working with. I think that's with all jobs, is recognizing when you should speak, when your opinion matters, or when to shut up and let what's happening happen. You have to read a room. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lisa. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to have done this. Good luck. I'm Lisa Frickland, and here are three tips for starting out in the industry. Number one, keep relationships. I want you to think that relationships are one of the most important things you'll ever do in this industry. Nurture them, carry them through because those producers and friends that you started your, your career out with will take you through to the end. I can't tell you how important this is. It's extremely important. Number two it says, don't say no. It's really easy to be intimidated by others or by the situation. I had had that a few times in my career where I said, oh, I don't know if I should really work with that camera. I've never learned how to use it. And then someone else does, and they probably knew less than I did about it, but they were willing to take a chance. Take a chance. What do you got to lose? Okay, maybe your reputation. But hey, you might as well try. <laughs> okay, number three. So don't be a gear pig. It's, it's, it's easy to get caught up in this whole world now of getting on those, those websites and you know, looking at all the great things you could buy that are going to make your life maybe better or else make you better loved. You, you're, you're going to spend tons of money on drones and sliders and uh, time-lapse rigs 
uh, and many of them don't work. So be choosy about purchasing them, but also know what your clients want to use and just specialize in what you do best. And if you're a really good storyteller, do that the best. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 11 of Storylines. Storylines is a Women in Film and Television Alberta production that's made possible with the generous support from Alberta's Ministry of Culture, Multiculturalism, and Status of Women. Special thanks to FAVA for its support on this production. Thanks very much to this week's guest, Lisa Frickland. The show's executive producers are Elise Graham, Ava Carvinen, Samantha Quantz, and Teresa Winnick. Shana Giles is our associate producer and social media coordinator. The original storyline's theme is composed by Aaron Macri and Laura Rabode, and I'm your host, senior producer, and audio technician, Sheena Rossiter. Make sure you tune in every week to catch the latest Storylines episode, where you can hear interviews and get tips from leading women in film and television. You can check us out and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, follow your storylines. We can't wait to see where they lead. <laughs>